Well, thank you to the Aquinas Institute and Father Richard. It's my pleasure to be here on the eve of the 800th anniversary of the Blackfriars here. So, my title is Tradition or Esau's Pontage, Reflections on Catholic Social Teaching. Esau's Pontage, of course, from Genesis 25, where Esau, in his distraction, sells his birthright for a bowl of beans. But I'm not going to explain why I gave this title until the end. Uh, this paper is a stripped-down version that is without all of the details and arguments. The last chapter of a book I have coming out on Catholic University Press this coming fall. Pius XI is the first pope to speak of a social doctrine as a unified set of teachings developing by way of clarity and application. In Quadragesimo Anno, Pius said, he inherited a doctrine handed down since the time of Leo XIII. Even in the mature decades of the modern tradition, mature decades are at the beginning, so far as I can tell, 1878 until World War II. The diversity of doctrinal contexts and historical accidents made it difficult to give a completely orderly exposition of the subject matter of Catholic social teaching. But once upon a time, the task of seeing it as a whole, as well as isolating its chief doctrinal elements, was easier. Three reasons. First, just as a tradition, it had only been handed down once to Pius XI and to his chief associate, Pius XII, both of whom were students of Leo. Pius XII was ordained in the 1890s. So they knew each other. But it was only handed down once. Um, Pius himself reprised three of Leo's most important social encyclicals. Uh, Leo's Anum Sacrum, for the Jubilee of 1900. By the way, Pius XII was ordained on that, on that day. That becomes Quas Primas under Pius XI, 1925. Leo's Arcanum Divine, uh, early 1880s on Christian marriage becomes Casti Canubii for Pius. And Leo's Rerum Novarum becomes Quadragesimo Anno. It was very easy to keep track of what was going on. The second thing that made it easier was there were only a few pontifical themes, chiefly the freedom of the church and its manifold social institutions, especially sacramental marriage, family, and what was maybe the most important issue for about 50 years, schools. If you just track encyclicals, and statements on schools, you could learn in a way the whole thing. And also the dignity of human labor, of course, 
and issues of justice and charity that ensue upon economic relations. And finally, its critique of liberalism. Only late does totalitarianism start to come into this. Liberalism, that is the idea that the origin of societies and of human authority arise from and are reducible back to commercial-like contracts. Third reason, they all had neo-scholastic training. The popes, their advisors, and many of the recipients of social encyclicals had access to a common philosophical infrastructure. They could elucidate and understand one encyclical in relation to the others. It's worth remembering that before 1963, these pontifical documents were not addressed to all men of goodwill. They were addressed to bishops or to certain sectors of the church. In any case, they didn't hesitate to use scholastic terminology when they saw fit. They weren't worried about being over the head of their readers. Those three reasons. But warning signs began to emerge post-1945. Warning signs about what? Well, the coherence of the tradition and its doctrinal elements. For example, Pius XII issued no social encyclical from 1940 until his death in 1958. And if there ever was a time you could have anticipated social encyclicals, it was during the, that decade and a half. Crucial informative years the war, the rebuilding of Western Europe, the crucial role of Catholic and Christian political parties in Europe, the Cold War, and perhaps the most important of all, the beginning of global decolonization during these years. But the scale and complexity of the situation made him hesitate. He, gave, he had very, very many big ideas. He only gave small talks, which were immediately bound in volumes and circulated everywhere as though they were kind of crypto encyclicals. But the first warning sign is Pius XII, who is as well prepared to write social encyclicals as any pope, didn't do it for about 20 years. Then John XXIII, who adopted a new method, to all men of goodwill, right, with Pachum and Terrace, reading signs of times rather than rendering verdicts or clarifying moral principles on disputed issues. And this global reach became even more apparent in Paul VI, Popolorum Progressio, 1967, on development. I am old enough to remember that because I'd already graduated from high school in which in church people would say, may the development be with you. <laughs> but it's a very important encyclical and it becomes a new warning sign. It was the first encyclical to cite contemporary theological opinion in contemporaneous books and journals. But it is also the first in this line of encyclicals to make no citations and to give no quotations from the medieval or Baroque era scholastics.
Thomas Aquinas is completely missing. There's not even an offhand reference in Popolorum Progressio. Some people speculate that he felt so burned by the reception of Humane Vitae, and the accusation is it was a really bad scholasticism he was using, or a scholasticism that was too narrow. Well, he decided to take it out altogether in Popolorum Progressio. It's also the first social encyclical to run up against the liberation theologians who were already crafting what became known as the dependency theory. That is, that first world notions of development contained unexamined ideologies of progress that have unintended bad consequences in the global south. He was very disappointed by the, that reception, Paul VI was. And four years later, in 1971, he seems to have had second thoughts about comprehending and unifying so many diverse social questions in so many theaters of the world. He worried that the social message was becoming swollen like a pinata. <coughs> Looks good on the outside, but take one good crack at it and it all comes apart. And as his biographer, Peter, Peter Hebblethwaite, reflected at the time, where it is vague, it can be blamed for its vagueness, but where it is precise, it can be blamed for its precision. <laughs> I think it's an accurate uh, depiction of what was going through Paul VI's mind. So I want to pick up the story right here in 1971, because this letter he sent to the, uh, to the cardinal prefect of the Council on Justice and Peace would itself prompt John Paul II's persistent concern that the doctrinal corpus of CST was being muted and scattered. And as I will try to explain this evening, John Paul II's interventions on this issue proved to be unsuccessful. Yet another warning sign. So, before I begin, here's my method. I intend here to show difficulties, but I presuppose no ill will. I presuppose no partisan conflict. That would be a different kind of story to do that. The difficulties I'm going to point out are there completely prescinding from inside baseball fighting going on about it. Second, this is not a criticism of Pope Francis who comes long after this problem is already congealed. Third, nothing I say tonight about Esau's pottage is meant to impugn social Catholicism on the ground, which amazingly can operate somewhat distant, distantly from pontifical teachings from on high. And in fact, long before Leo started doing that, social Catholicism was already on the ground doing quite nicely. Okay. So, Octogesimo, uh, Octogesimo uh, um, on 14 May 1971, marking the 80th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, Paul VI sent an apostolic letter to the president of the Pontifical Commission for Justice and Peace. It was subtitled, A Call to Action. Interestingly, 
not an encyclical. An apostolic letter, which is typically used for, not used for dogmatic definitions, but to give counsel to the church on points of doctrine that require deeper explanation in light of particular circumstances. In this case, it, Paul VI thought that his reflections were not suitable for a wider audience. It's not even sent to the bishops. Because he was gonna raise a troubling issue and he was not gonna issue this to all men of goodwill. The paragraph that galvanized attention and debate, I will read in part. In the face of such widely varying situations, it is difficult for us to utter a unified message and to put forward a solution which has universal validity. Such is not our ambition, nor is it our mission. It is up to Christian communities to analyze with objectivity the situation which is proper to their own country, to shed light, the light of the gospel's unalterable words, and for action from the social teaching of the church. It is up to these communities with the help of the Holy Spirit in communion with the bishops who hold responsibility and in dialogue with other Christian brethren and all men of goodwill to discern the options and, commission and commitments. Okay. He does use the word doctrina in the singular once but it is key to, quote unquote, men's expectations and the way the Catholic social teaching accompanies men in their search for the right answers. That's a quote. Yes, he concedes at the end that one goal of Catholic social teaching is to enlighten, but its main goal is to prompt action, unquote. Now, well-intentioned and smart liberals of that era, and I mean by the word liberal the way it was typically used post-conciliar, celebrated this shift of perspective. One very competent scholar, maybe one of the best scholars ever on Catholic social doctrine, Sister Mary Ellsburn, put it this way. This approach provides fertile soil for permanent preoccupations not answers, and creative innovations within the social teaching of the church, unquote. So we have unchanging gospel principles put into dialogue with changeable social circumstances, a kind of ferment of the gospel and human aspirations, creating an historically constituted dialogue. Who interprets on the social questions, the whole church and the laity. <clears throat> Octogesima is not spoken of very much today compared to the 70s and the 80s, but it was a very serious moment in this tradition. Um, it, it was kind of the original of that old line Mater si magistra no. That the church will act like a mother and it will gently guide and it will encourage, but don't expect us to lay out detailed plans 
apparently Carl Wojtyla concluded the same thing. This is one of these rare moments in which people on different sides of different debates in the church see exactly the same thing. And from the very outset, in Laborum Exerciens, 1981, his first social encyclical, he wrote, furthermore, in this doctrine, attention to the question goes back much further than the last 90 years. In fact, the church's social teaching finds its source in sacred scripture, beginning with the book of Genesis, and especially in the gospel and writings of the apostles. So we, don't, we needn't be hampered by tracing this back to 1878. It goes all the way back. And he continues, in the course of the decade, since the publication of the encyclical Rerum Novarum, the church's teaching has always recalled all of these principles, going back to the arguments formulated in a much older tradition, for example, the well-known arguments of the Summa Theologiae of St. Thomas Aquinas. Thus, right out of the gate, John Paul II wants to emphasize continuity, especially regarding the principles drawn from revelation and philosophy, he at least mutes the notion that doctrine is merely discernment within the present socio-cultural economic horizon. He worried that unattended, octogesima would drift into what Pope Benedict later called two typologies of Catholic social teaching, a preconciliar paradigm and a postconciliar paradigm. Again, in Solicitudo Re Socialis, 1987, marking the anniversary of Popolorum Progressio, quote, the church's social doctrine therefore belongs to the field not of ideology, but of theology, in particular, moral theology. By the way, footnote, by then, Per Chenu had written his book on social teaching as ideology, which was widely read, a very small book, that the church's social teaching had bitten off more than it can chew, and a lot of what had been bitten off was unexamined uh, ideology. Fortibo had read it. Then again, in 1993, Veritatis Splendor. And it's throughout that decade of the 90s, John Paul keeps on writing what he calls the crisis of truth. He says, I address myself to you, venerable brothers in Episcopate, who share with me the responsibility of safeguarding sound teaching with the intention of clearly setting forth certain aspects of doctrine which are of crucial importance in facing what is certainly a genuine crisis, which has engendered the most serious implications for moral life of the faithful, as well as for a just and fraternal social life. I've noticed as I've gone through the details on the ground through these documents, something I never noticed before, but when he, especially through that decade of the 1990s, whenever he raises the issue of the intellectus fidei, the ability to elucidate and understand. He invariably mentions as the first example social doctrine. 
And he goes on to say in Veritatis, this is clearly seen in the church's social teaching, which belongs to the field of theology, especially moral theology, and from her presentation of the commandments governing social, economic, and political life, not only with regard to general attitudes, but also to precise and specific kinds of behavior and concrete acts. 1998, I won't keep on going, but we have to, I have to mention one more. Fides at Ratio. Truth demands of moral theology a careful inquiry, rooted unambiguously in the word of God. In order to fulfill its mission, moral theology must turn to a philosophical ethics, which looks to the truth of the good. Drawing on this organic vision, linked necessarily to Christian holiness and the practice of human and supernatural virtues, moral theology will be able to tackle peace, social justice, the family, defense of life, and the natural environment in the more appropriate and effective way. And from there, he goes on to say, what he means by philosophy is not eclecticism. That is, eclecticism, as he understands it, runs the risk of being unable to distinguish the part of truth of a given doctrine from the elements of it which may be erroneous or ill-suited to the task at hand." Unquote. I could track more of this on the ground, but you get the picture. And so, a few months after Fides at Ratio, he issues a document, which becomes the big warning sign. Uh, entitled Ecclesia in America. It was after one of the Roman synods. He says, to this end, it would be very useful to have a compendium or approved synthesis of Catholic social doctrine. Such a synthesis would only formulate general principles, leaving their application to further treatment of the specific issues bound up with different local, local situations. I think it's worth noting uh, that he didn't want a compendium of applications, which would have been a very long compendium indeed. So just as Paul VI in 1971 has sent a letter to justice and peace about what he thought the limits to CST, at least from the pontifical standpoint, so John Paul II, some 25 years later, asks the same council to make a catechism or a compendium of social doctrine with the expressed wish to strengthen principles, including the philosophical infrastructure of elucidation and understanding. He continued to use the word synthesis. So here then is the fourth warning sign within a generation. Pius' hesitation, Paul VI, octagesima, JP2, several encyclicals emphasizing the role of the intellectus fidei. And finally, the fact that justice and peace could not pull together an orderly exposition of the doctrinal elements or their historical accidents. So I turn to that document. <laughs> compendium, 
By the way, we don't know what John Paul might have thought of it because it was issued only a few months before he died. And I don't think John Paul was reading drafts of this at that period of time. On October 25, 2004, Cardinal Martino, president of the Pontifical Council of Justice and Peace, presented the compendium, the social doctrine of the church. Five years of painstaking work, including a topical index of 150 pages. I'm almost sure they wrote a topical index before the compendium itself was done. And it's amazing to me, it, by the way, it's a very good index, that the Italians could do indexing as well as the Germans. But they, they pulled it off. Someone had a lot of cappuccino in that office. And they produced a very beautiful volume. The curial team compiled several hundred chunks of magisterial texts, sorted into principles, topics, and applications, and just a vast array of material, running from the Book of Genesis to the Holy See's intervention in the Kyoto on the occasion of the Third World Water Forum. Almost all of the texts are drawn post-1958, which is interesting because the texts are drawn right from the point that as a scholar, I would identify the warning signs starting to go up. Uh, Martino was well aware of the Pope's commission. In fact, he repeatedly restates the goal of this volume, synthesis, coherence, regarding chiefly what is called the doctrinal corpus. Lamenting the fact that this doctrinal patrimony is neither taught nor known sufficiently, he goes on to say, this document offers a complete overview of the fundamental framework of the doctrinal corpus of Catholic social teaching, which are taken up, interpreted, and formed into a unified whole by the magisterium, which promulgates social teachings as church doctrine. To the church's magisterium belong those who have received the munus docendi, or the ministry of teaching in the areas of faith and morals with the authority received from Christ. Right away, you can see that Martino not only understood that part of what uh, the Pope had asked for, but it's definitely cabining section four of Octogesim uh, Advenians, right? This is to be attributed to the official magisterium, okay? He says, insofar as this part of the church's moral teaching, the church's social doctrine has the same dignity and authority as her moral teaching. Now, that said, the problem, there is no argument, no philosophic, philosophical synthesis, no historical narrative. You could read it backwards. I'm not sure with any loss of meaning. You, you could read it backwards. It was apparently designed not to be read either forwards or backwards, but to induce the reader to go to the index and pick what they wanted. There's no vector at all. It's, it's a completely flat scheme. And what's very annoying no hint of a single complication of any sort. That it's, it's complete continuity in all directions. 
going backwards, going forwards, going from this issue to that issue. I thought to myself, this enormous compilation without philosophical or historical vectors represents a tradition that's either sublimely confident in itself or a tradition that's so overwhelmed by the diversity of principles, applications, and pontifical themes that it can only give account by way of just juxtaposing chunks of magisterial text, juxtapositions that might lead to a synthesis of so forth. Now, the problem is at the outset. It's the proliferation of principles. I count 11 for starters. Dignity of the human person, principle of the common good, the principle of subsidiarity, the principle of solidarity. How solidarity is different than common good, I don't know, but Pope Francis is now wanting to put in the word fraternity rather than solidarity. When solidarity was invented so they didn't have to use the word from the French Revolution, but maybe we're going back. <laughs> but there's four for starters. And then under fundamental values, what's the difference between a principle and a value is, I'm not gonna to try to indicate, but the, the next set are re referred to even in the compendium and in pontifical documents as principles. So I'm just gonna count them as principles. Truth, freedom, justice, universal destination of human goods, preferential option for the poor, participation, and love. So that gets us to 11. Now, I think we should add Pope Francis's edition. Post-compendium from Evangelii Gaudium, 2013. Time is greater than space. Unity prevails over conflict. Realities are more important than ideas. The whole is greater than the part. I seem to recall that Aquinas believed that last one was a per se nota proposition. But maybe popes have to point out per se nota propositions. Mm -hmm. But here's what's important. This list, which now can include at least 15 principles, is totally post-Octogesima of Venians. Paul VI, then, in 1971, had indicated there are some general principles in the background. I believe that's section 48 of Octogesima. He didn't make a list of them. Certain unchangeable principles of the gospel. Sure, he surely meant the commandments and so forth. And John Paul II made it very clear he wanted to make sure that principles are elucidated and understood in a way adequate for a doctrinal corpus. And I guess it's just the Roman way, maybe the Italian way, right? There are principles, so let's make more of them. Just when two popes back to back had reason to slow down, and good reasons to slow down, Paul VI had good reasons and JP II did as well, we have a confetti of principles. Many of them, and here's where if I gave a different paper, I'd just go through arguments about every one of them, but there are redundancies, semi-equivalences, equivocations, 
and there is no philosophical structure or even the depiction of one in the compendium. There is one note that the fact that social teaching is under moral theology doesn't mean it runs without philosophy. But that's never used to illuminate anything else in the compendium. There's not even the first stirrings of philosophy. A carefully crafted definition moving toward a dialectic, much less a, a synthesis of anything. I'm going to give a couple of examples. Justice. Quote from the compendium. The church's social magisterium constantly calls for, the most, calls for the most classical forms of justice to be respected, commutative, distributive, and legal justice. Ever greater importance has been given to social justice, which represents a real development in general justice, the justice that regulates social relationships according to the criterion of observance of the law, unquote. So there are about 4,000 words devoted to the Kyoto Third World Water Treaty, 4,000. There are less than 100 to justice. And it's, it's never defined what they are. So uh, what is commutative justice? What is distributive? I mean, how, how do they differ? Uh, this was a real development, social justice, of general justice, but what, what is general justice? And it seems like a very important point since questions or issues of justice con surface constantly. Who owes what to whom in commutative, distributive, or social justice? I don't think anyone who doesn't already know would have a clue to what the paradigm is. Is the principle of redistribution something different than distributive justice? And how might either of them differ from social justice? And you finally reach a passage in which it's stated, a large part of the church's social teaching is solicited and determined by important social questions to which social justice is the proper answer. It's like an oral exam, doctoral exam in one of the Roman schools. You say, what is the proper answer to important social questions? And the student would say, is this a tricky question or is it a trick question? <laughs> professor should say, you pass. Yeah. A commutation is woefully underdeveloped. It, it's practically stated with cliches. We, we read things about contractualistic vision, right? Now, it seems to me it's very crucial to locate the domain of the justice of exchange for two reasons. Because all human societies are heavily carpeted with exchanges. Everyone in this room has probably made a hundred of them today without even thinking about it. But also because of the church's tradition, for the better part of two centuries, the church's critique of what is today called neoliberalism really depends on understanding the nature and limits of the strict justice of exchange.
I would conclude from reading the, uh, the text in the compendium that social justice, distributive justice, are corrections of commutative justice. So the two most elegant and highest modes of justice, which is what the community owes to its members in distribution and what the members owe to the community, are in fact pretty much reduced to a cor correction of exchange. And if you want to do ideological and philosophical battle with neoliberalism, you don't want to be in that position. <coughs> Another example, common good. We have two definitions juxtaposed. I'll read it. The principle of the common good to which every aspect of social life must be related, if it is to attain its fullest meaning, stems from the dignity, unity, equality of all people. According to its primary and broadly accepted sense, the common good indicates, and this is a quote from uh, Gaudi Metzbeth, the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and easily, unquote. There's only a bracket here referring to that text. No interruption now. The common good does not consist in the simple sum of particular goods uh, of each subject of a social entity. Belonging to everyone and to each person it is and remains common because it is indivisible and because only together is it possible to attain it, increase it, and safeguard its effectiveness. Now, there's been a, a fair amount of scholarly ink spilled on this. Because at best it's an equivocation, these two things back to back. You're, you're using common good and two complete, about two really different things. The primary definition certainly will not work for societies like marriage, family, which are two distinct societies, church, and I don't think it works for polity, because those societies have unity that's not an aggregation of things. They have a form of union. Of course, JP2 used to say they are social subjects. They involve more than social subject intersubjectivity. They're social subjects. Quote, they're much more than the sum of their individual members, to quote John Paul II. And not only that, but the four I mentioned, matrimony, family, um, ecclesial membership, and polity are quite different than one another. So we not only need to mark off the second definition from the first, they can't be the same, you're using the language equivocally, but even within the second category where, where there are societies, there are real societies, irreducibly social, there's at least four different kinds. And so you need analogies. By the way, Cardinal Schoenberg, to his credit, put that into the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Each human community possesses a common good which permits it to be recognized as such. There are no analogies in the, there are metaphors, but there are no analogies in the compendium. Now, 
this would again be a different subject, maybe almost for a semester long course. But I think these two are reconcilable. The first is a set of conditions that include utilities, transient partnerships, anonymous relationships, in which is nested communities that are real societies. The first is under the name of conditions. The second would go under the name of common good in some strict sense of the term, irreducibly social common good. They're reconcilable, I think. The compendium does not reconcile them. So what is the clue? What's going on here that such elementary This is even shaggier than an undergraduate paper. Okay. What's going on? And I think I have a clue. And it's not just the compendium. The compendium is, is, is a symptom of it. That is the default position of the noun, society, and of the adjective, social. It's always defaulting to the entirety. To the entirety. So right out of the compendium. These are principles of a general and fundamental character since they concern the reality of society in its entirety. Well, to use society in that sense is everywhere. Everywhere there are going to be conditions. We want clean water. Uh, we want justice of exchange. We want, these are all necessary in, in some way or another. Gaudium et Spes simply says the entire human race. So these terms, society, community, communion, are just used interchangeably. And it, it's not just in the compendium. I think you will find it throughout Roman documents, even in the 1983 Code of Canon Law. And the canon lawyers are usually the kind of people who would split every hair to make another distinction, right? But these terms are just used interchangeably. And it's at least an awkward way of proceeding, and it can lead to great conceptual confusion. I'll give one example before moving. In Caritas and Veritate, Pope Benedict XVI, we read these two sentences. Another important consideration is the common good. To love someone is to desire that person's good and to take effective steps to secure it. Besides the good of the individual, there is a good that is linked to living in society, the common good. It's the good of all of us made up as individuals, families, intermediate groups. So we already know they're, they're putting enough social facts into that that you'd never be able to describe a family. Right, a motorcycle glove inside of a family. <laughs> it is a good that is sought not for its own sake, but for the people who belong to the social community who can really and effectively pursue their good within it, unquote. Now, it's, it's very clear that Benedict's encyclical is, is using as a model the first definition of common good that's in the compendium. By the way, I have further evidence they were just reading the compendium. I don't even think they're reading Gaudium et Spes. Uh, so on the set of conditions, ensemble of conditions, or society in its entirety, uh, 
Of course, it would make some sense to say, not loved for its own sake. Because many of those conditions are instruments, really important instruments, by the way. Or they would be necessities, human necessities of some kind. And you love the water system, not for its own sake, but for the sake of one's own need for water and one's family's need for water. Okay. I think that's where it's going. But I did a search, fallible search, but I could not find not for its own sake in any pontifical document. Where did they get that? Although it makes some sense to use that vis-a-vis -vis the first definition of common good. And I found it. It's in the compendium of Catholic social teaching. Section 170. Uh, I think Benedict's team, I'm not going to blame this on the Holy Father Emeritus, but someone on that team was thumbing through the compendium. And in 164, the two, section 164, the two definitions of common good in 170, not for its own sake. And, and they just fuse them, another fusion of things. But if you actually look at number 170, beyond the first five words, they're not talking about an instrument at all. It's actually citing Centesimus Annus, section 41, where the Pope criticizes Marxism for its doctrine that alienation can be repaired only by a this-worldly collective and therefore closes the human ordination to a true society that's not an aggregate and the ordination to a transcendent divine good. So what they were citing meant just the opposite of what they thought it was. And so here we have a case of these juxtapositions in the compendium now kind of confusing a pontifical document. By the way, I'll say this, that Laudato Si is much better than this. It, it works much more critically with some of these inherited definitions. But I point out, I'm not interested in the compendium for its own sake, but as a symptom of something. And that this fantastic Catholic tradition of social thought, the stock and trade terms, society and social, are really shaggy. Now, a brief reflection on juxtaposition, then I can conclude. Very important theologians of the conciliar era, Potmeyer, for example, in Congar, used the term juxtaposition to indicate how certain debates during the Second Vatican Council were eventually corralled into documents. You know, how long can you debate and wait for a consensus to get a document? And the method of juxtaposition was to take two or more things that are thought to be true but are still awaiting some kind of consensus or agreement about how they are common elements of a single subject. This was also called at the time, I believe Congar, the binomial exposition. That is, church is the people of God, church 
is the body of Christ, so on and so forth. It maintains tensions awaiting dialectic and synthesis. And it's the synthesis whereby the unity of the subject is affirmed and understood. The weakness of the juxtapositional method is how long do you have to wait to keep on adding things on? I mean, how many juxtaponents do you need? Or are we just waiting for a majority of people to agree on one of them? So even in Caritas and Veritate, we see in a way, I think subliminally, the method being used. Benedict insists we do not have two typologies of Catholic social teaching, pre-conciliar and post-conciliar. But when you read the encyclical, basically we have the juxtaposition of the two. Right? Uh, there is the suggestion that there's a unity, or there's an assertion that there is the unity, but it's not shown yet. Now, there's Potmeyer and Congar were very sophisticated theologians. But in the case of Catholic social teaching, the example here being the compendium, the explanation has to just be very simple. Uh, they didn't know how to do it. They got the index done, but they didn't know how to synthesize. And this is the example of the collapse of what used to be called the intellectus fidei. So they just kept on adding on. And the add-on method is, well, there's too much emphasis given to natural law, so let's have more emphasis given to social sciences. It's fine. I'm a member of the Academy of Social Sciences. But the add-ons eventually cause trouble. Uh, first of all, it's human nature, over time anyway, to defer to the weaker juxtaponent. This is why Samuel Taylor Coleridge called juxtaposition the work of a pseudo-continuous mind. That is a mind that can keep thinking or keep talking without resolving the positions under review. It's in human nature, finally, to take the weaker juxtaposition. The one that causes the least trouble, anyway, the, the fewer complications. Another problem is it makes it very difficult to discern development of an idea or of a doctrine. Accumulation over time is not the same thing as development. And accumulation is not the same thing as what Pius XI meant by he inherited something something handed on, as he says. Now, complexity of applications of CST, saying too, many, too much about too many different things. This is not the main problem. I mean, a lot of these applications become historically defunct rather quickly anyway. The main problem was the juxtaposition of 15 principles. That really will cause havoc. You start shuffling those and then deciding willy-nilly which of the juxtaponents works. You do have a problem on your hands. Second thing I'll say by way of conclusion. Of course, papal prudence. By the way, that's Leo XIII's term, Sapientia Christiani. He says papal prudence is, covers 
is multiform and covers diverse things. This is post-Vatican I now. It says, the Pope has to make prudential decisions about everything from concordats to you name it. In other words, papal prudence is covering like mad social issues of all sorts, right? But papal prudence is wider than doctrine. Let's admit this. So every pontificate has to exercise papal prudence over social matters, especially insofar as the church is directly related to them. And they have always described this, at least since the 60s, it's not ideology. <coughs> so prudence is not ideology. But what about doctrine? Ideology is usually understood to be a closed, rigid, reductive, pseudo-scientific system of thought. We can think of all the 20th century examples. But, you know, ideology is also very close to reading the signs of the times kind of method as well. I mean, it's not just rigid thinking that is vulnerable to ideology. It's also weak thinking is vulnerable to it. Uh, in Second Vatican Council, well, well, in Pachamenteris and in Gaudium Espes, was said that the church needs to understand the world as it is, but part of the world the way it is, is its explanations and longings, its aspirations and undertakings, I'm quoting. And among these are the world's philosophies and ideologies, which in particular cases might be incomplete, misleading, or even false. But still others are splendidly true. But in either case, engagement with the world means careful and respectful attention to what Dignitatis Humani called desires in the minds of men. It's a very interesting term. It comes back in octogesima. Desires in the minds of men. But to discern desires in the minds of men. And to draw the right conclusions about them. Or to draw conclusions which begin to look like they have the certainty of something that was, would be described in the logic of essences would be a big mistake. You start speaking of human aspirations, especially of a particular era. You've not only opened up yourself that it's obsolete 20 years later, but they're contingent. And to put them in terms of doctrine is bound to cause disappointment and skepticism. Disappointment and skepticism flows from this. Just as in the older regime, to put so many things in terms of natural law, right? So you have a natural law argument about virtually any kind of conduct. It leads to disappointment and skepticism. Fast, last point. Remember that social doctrine now sits in the basement of moral theology. rather uncomfortably. I don't think John Paul II ever had a reasonable hope of making this rummage in the basement 
as clear as moral theology, such as in Veritatis Splendor, where there are still enough people around to even disagree about what is, what is the object of the act? What's the material object? What's the formal object? What is conscience? How does it differ from this and that? Moral theology still had immediate access to its philosophical in infrastructure. And I think it still does. You know, one sentence in uh, the synodal uh, document written by Pope Francis and Boris Letizia, one sentence, it was not even a complete sentence, it was a footnote. There were 200 people online with some degree of education arguing about it. Like, in moral theology, there's still some premium put upon definition, you know, <laughs> argument, conclusions. And in moral theology, actually, most people who bother with it uh, can at least understand the person they're arguing with. But if social doctrine goes under 15 principles that are not sorted out, some of them not really even defined, and it's in the basement of moral theology, what's going to happen? Church dividing issue. Because the Western church, Ronald Knox and Dawson here, once upon a time, wrote books on, in the Western tradition, we don't have schisms over, this, over Trinitarian theology. You have to be very learned to have schisms over that kind of thing, right? We have schisms over morals. Donatists, Jansenists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of our Protestant colleagues, part of the same tradition, they separate over drinking and purity and society, social issues. I worry about this. I'm just going to put a, I don't think JP2 uh, ever had a hope of achieving that with social doctrine. The subject matter just doesn't lend itself to a very taut to spend splendor kind of precision. But he had reason to ask for more than what he got. He wanted a little catechism. He should have gone back to the Dominican in Vienna. But, but, but he didn't get that. Uh, so, now to Esau. I use Lord Byron's line. Esau, thou soldest thy birthright for a mess. Thou shouldest gotten more or eaten less. Pius XII and his protege, Paul VI, perhaps teach less. John Paul II asked for more. But I just ended with a juxtaposition. That's where I should end this. Thank you. <laughs>